I'm from the West Coast. I know no one on the East Coast. I have two weeks to find an apartment. It's not like, you know, I could call up a buddy and be like, do you, do you need a roommate or something? Whatever. I was like, how do I find a roommate on Craigslist? And then I get murdered or like, I don't know. <laughs> I was like, I'm 22. I don't know what I'm doing. So I kind of looked more into Webster and I was like, holy crap. Like they like set everything up for you. You get food every day. Like it's already furnished. Like I don't have to buy furniture or anything. Um, it was when, within walking distance to work. I'm like, this is perfect. You just heard from Sarah Burks. In 2015, five months after graduating from the University of Washington, she got a job offer from a sportswear company in Midtown. But she was unfamiliar with the city and worried about finding a good place to live on such a short notice. The place she's describing, the Webster Apartments, is a rooming house for career-minded professional women on West 34th Street. For Sarah, it was the perfect solution to an all-too-familiar dilemma, finding affordable housing in the Big Apple. But what is a female boarding house and where does it come from? This is the story of housing for single women trying to make it in New York. In the 19th century, New York City was booming with industry and commerce, which attracted many newcomers from both rural areas and abroad. To illustrate this with a few numbers, in 1850, the city had around 600,000 residents. By 1900, however, that number had swelled to 4 million. New York was also becoming more diverse, a place of intense social interactions and home to a large immigrant population and a growing Black community. That's a massive jump. So how did the city cope with that exponential growth? Well, the city was simply not equipped to accommodate so many newcomers. It didn't have enough housing, and what it had was increasingly not affordable. At the end of the 19th century, three out of four city dwellers in the U.S. lived in rental housing. At the same time, wages never seemed to be enough to cover the increasing cost of living, and especially of housing. Hmm, that sounds pretty familiar. More and more, working-class families could only afford housing if they took in boarders or lodgers. As a result, often two or three families occupied a single three- or four-room flat. And just like today, access to quality housing was divided along class lines. Poor people lived in the city center in overcrowded and unhealthy rooms. The rich, on the other hand, were able to move farther away from the center and lived in row houses, brownstones, and apartments. Now you might be asking how women factor into this story. As New York became more and more industrial, several industries began recruiting female laborers. Women were particularly sought after in garment production. Many of these workers were young, single women on their own for the first time in a major city. Of course, all of these women needed housing. Which was already quite scarce. It was especially hard for women with few connections in the city to find an affordable and safe place to live. Most single women ended up renting rooms or living in private boarding houses. By 1910, there were around 68,000 women boarders in Manhattan alone. And women were often at a disadvantage among boarders. Simply put, owners didn't want them. It was an open secret that most co-ed boarding houses reserved their cheapest rooms for men. Translation, 
women ended up paying more than men for worse accommodations. Yeah. In 1915, the Young Women's Christian Association released a report which said that the landlady who prefers girls is an unknown individual. Men don't stay in their rooms so much, was the general verdict. They never want to wash out their clothes and hang them on the furniture to dry. They are more quiet and don't complain so much and are not fussy about little things. And the actual day-to-day -day living in these spaces wasn't so great either. Most boarding houses didn't allow women to host friends and privacy was rare because most owners subdivided and sub-subdivided to reap as much profit as possible from their units. So in addition to unaffordable rents, girls in the city often experienced loneliness and overcrowding. But women themselves weren't the only ones who didn't like this situation. Moral reformers were intensely worried about the morals of women who were not in touch with social agencies and were living in mixed-sex boarding homes. They called them girls adrift and wondered what would happen to them in these settings with little or no privacy and no supervision over their behavior. And that kind of language and thinking is extremely important to understanding how single women's housing came to be. This is a historical period in which respectability politics reigned supreme, especially in cities. A respectable woman is not going out into the public sphere, earning her own living or living outside of patriarchal reach. So segregating women from the regular boarding market became a matter of preserving Victorian ideals of propriety and maintaining the socially required separation between women and the city. Especially when thinking of the earliest all-female homes run by Christian charities like the Ladies' Christian Union. Definitely. The idea of separate housing for women emerged in the post-Civil War era amongst well-off Christian ladies. They were concerned with the fates and reputations of the young single woman moving into the city to work. So in the late 1850s, the Ladies' Christian Union began operating the first all-female housing in New York City. The LCU homes provided a safe, affordable, and genteel place to live, but there were many strings attached. Girls living in LCU homes in the post-Civil War period had to follow strict protocol designed not only to encourage, but to enforce good behavior. The idea was to train girls from the lower classes and middle-class gentility, with the thought that they might one day become wives and mothers. Residents were expected to attend church every Sunday, could not bring anyone to their bedrooms under any circumstances, had their rooms inspected weekly for neatness, and needed to apply for permission to skip mandatory mealtimes. If they wanted to permanently leave the home, the girls had to write an explanatory note in advance of moving out quite tempting to imagine that girls didn't always follow those rules, that they snuck out at night to meet a lover or skipped mass to hang out with friends. But then we start to see a shift in the logic of women's accommodations, and this translates into an expansion in the offerings available to single working women. That's right things slowly started to move away from the overbearing strictness and moral urgency of the early Christian homes. New models emerged that catered to the needs of young women without regulating every single aspect of their lives. Around the turn of the century, a number of options were developed by both philanthropic organizations and business ventures to address the growing need for housing for single women in New York. 
working class women with higher salaries and middle class women started to rent their own apartments alone or with friends. We know how this works. Three, four, five women rent one apartment together. However, this was not widely available. For many working class black and immigrant women, the only alternative were the so-called organized homes. While they did charge rent, these homes were not business ventures, but had an openly social mission. Their aim was to provide safe and comfortable living spaces for girls who would otherwise have to live in boarding houses. Their roots were in those early LCU type homes, but by the beginning of the 20th century, organized homes became more diverse in terms of the rules they mandated, the services they offered, and the women they served. At the beginning of the 20th century, there were a total of 54 organized homes in New York, with around 3,500 places for single women. These homes offered superior services and a better environment than most regular boarding or, or rooming houses. They provided community, and while many of them continued the tradition of moral and social programs, some homes began offering vocational training too. The homes mostly housed permanent residents, but places were also reserved for transients or women passing through town or on their way to another form of accommodation. Interestingly, most of these homes also had some elements of self-government, such as house councils. And many of these homes would coalesce around different interests and identities. So there were homes catering to specific religious, racial, or ethnic backgrounds. One example was the Clara de Hirsch Home for Working Girls, a Jewish non-sectarian home founded in 1897 by a group of female Jewish leaders who were concerned with the welfare of young working girls in New York City. It was reportedly called into existence when revelations of a horrifying character were brought to the notice of the community at large, how the immigrant girls were fleeced, exploited, decoyed and lured to places of perdition, how they were victimized by greedy employers and their young life was crushed out of them. Here we see a similar rationale to their moral Girls need to be protected from the moral depravity of the city and that the all-female home model is the way to achieve this. In the hearts and minds of city leaders, these homes were effective preventative means to safeguard and protect the vulnerable populations of young, single, working girls. Right, but there are important differences between this type of home and the early Christian model. The Clara de Hush provided vocational training to the girls, many of whom were recent immigrants between the ages 14 and 21. Girls were trained in either domestic science, such as housework, cooking and laundry, or industrial skills such as sewing, dressmaking and millinery. Training also included elementary education and physical exercise. And while the Hirsch home mainly served Russian Jewish girls, it did not bar access to non-Jewish applicants. By contrast, LCU homes only admitted Protestant applicants. It was also much more relaxed than those homes. They wanted the girls to feel like they were living in their own home. Residents had many privileges and there were few rules because its founders sought to make it like a home and not an institution. The Clara de Hirsch and similar homes under the umbrella of organized homes expanded housing options for working class immigrant and immigrant women who did not fit the mold of Christian establishments. 
but a growing need for upscale housing among middle and upper class female professionals resulted in yet another type of all-female housing, the apartment hotel. The first apartment hotel in New York was, of course, built for bachelors in the 1870s with the stated goal of serving cultured male tenants who were actively pursuing a career in the city. But there was a clear opportunity in the market. Housing for women working in higher paying locations or students attending college in the city. Women with a little more money living outside of the purview of a male-headed household. In response, commercial enterprises began creating apartment hotels just for these women. One famous example was the Martha Washington Hotel, an upscale apartment hotel that was actually founded by a group of female entrepreneurs in 1903. It differs from the housing models that came before because it is a business enterprise and is free from the paternalism or philanthropy of the moral housing programs. Still, it was caught up in a similar web of gendered respectability politics. The Martha Washington catered to that growing population of white, middle-class women who were working or studying in the city and lived outside of a male-headed household. At its opening, it accommodated 500 guests while 200 more were on a wait list. The hotel aimed to provide the security and oversight of the private home, as they put it, while acknowledging young women's growing independence. The hotel accepted both overnight and long-term guests for $1 to $2 per day for a single room that was not much larger than servants' quarters. A pretty sizable sum considering the average worker took home about a dollar a day. True, but the hotel was furnished with every modern convenience, including a rooftop garden, a library, parlors, tea and music rooms, and even private dining halls. All of these were designed to appeal to the tastes of women of refinement and culture. There was even a drugstore, a shoeshine parlor, a tailor shop, and a resident manicurist. It's important to note that the freedom and luxury of the Martha Washington were unparalleled in the women's housing market. After its opening, a New York Times correspondent said the hotel was so superior to the New York boarding and lodging house that it cannot be considered in the same breath. However, such luxury could only be experienced by a very select demographic of well-to-do white women. Women of color in particular were excluded from this and several other housing models. Indeed, while housing for single women was scarce, safe and affordable housing for black women was even scarcer. In the post-Civil War period, New York became a major focus of the Great Migration. African-Americans migrating up from the South competed for housing with poor immigrants in a highly saturated housing market. The boarding house, New York City's quick and easy answer to the problem of housing, quickly became an indispensable Black Gothamites resided in some of the city's most crowded and most dangerous tenements. White officials, journalists, and reformers actually held black women accountable for the crowded and unhealthy living conditions. What's striking is that New York City's black population was always disproportionately female. The demographic patterns of the Great Migration reinforce this fact. So there was, at the time, a sizable population of black women in need of affordable, safe and clean housing. 
Now, if you remember earlier, we talked a bit about the importance of respectability and gender politics. Well, at the turn of the century, African-American women were particularly devoted to respectability as a means to improve their lives as women and as racialized subjects. Organizations began cropping up to address the lack of safe, respectable, and supportive housing programs for single Black women. One such organization was the White Rose Mission, a settlement house established in 1897 on the Upper East Side to aid young African-American migrant women who had recently arrived in the city. This was the first Black social settlement managed for and run by Black women. The founder of the White Rose Mission observed the lack of decent accommodation and support for young Black women, describing that, for the young and unfriended women of other races, there are all sorts of institutions, but for Black girls and women, there is nothing. So, she opened a home to provide these women with respectable lodging, guidance, and direction. She sought to educate and train these women with the principles of self-help and right living. The mission served around 6,000 African-American women on 97th Street, east of 3rd Avenue. A pamphlet distributed by the home advertised that those who were able to pay were charged $1.25 per night, but, as they said, the penniless received the same hearty welcome free of charge. In addition to offering food and shelter, the mission focused on job placement and educational services for the broader Black community. Its founder believed in industrial training to equip Black women with the basic skills necessary for employment. The pamphlet reads that the White Rose Home is doing more effective work each year through its industrial training of boys and girls of the neighborhood its clubs for women, its fostering care extended to girls who, though no longer inmates of the house, are free to regard it as their home, where they may come on their days out for advice and recreation. So we thought it would be appropriate to close by talking a little bit about the research process for this subject. Initially, we wanted to tell this story as a her story from the point of view of the people living in these homes. But there is a lack of archival material written from the point of view of the women, many of whom were young, immigrant, poor or women of color. The archive began to dictate the ways in which we could tell this story. We had to shift from a her story from below approach to a more traditional examination of institutional documents. The task of telling the story became one of aggregating and supposing comparative experiences based on what we could glean from institutional records and news coverage. We read through news coverage, contracts, application materials, regulations, and housing advertisements for each of the homes we could find. Unsurprisingly, the Ladies Christian Union had the most intact and extensive archive. One of the sources with the most intimate portrayal of the girls living in these homes was a ledger kept by the LCU from 1858 all the way till 1938. Each entry is a story of how the girl came to reside in and leave the establishment, along with a few details about her life and, of course, about her manners. So there's a story about a young Miss Jimerson who went to the home in 1865 to escape her strict parents, a Southern widow called Miss Schooner, who stayed at the home in 1866 and was suspected of being a Confederate spy, she mysteriously vanished before being asked to leave. And there's also happy ending stories like Miss Green, who came to the home as an orphan in 1865 in poor health and having just lost her mother. Eventually, with the home's connections, 
found position as a governess in Havana. And in 1870, it's reported that she came back to visit the home with her husband and two children. Another thing we can tell about these homes is that they were pretty well attended. Some houses received so many applications that they had to turn women away. In 1907, a group of women living in one of the LCU homes wrote a letter petitioning that a new home be erected because they noticed a lot of women were being turned away due to lack of space. And in 1915 again, a young woman told the researchers of YWCA that she wanted them to build a place where girls like me can feel they really belong. A place that was comfortable and private, that provided a refuge from the hustle and bustle of city life, a place they could call home. Although we don't have accounts written by the girls that tell us how they felt about the housing situation, we can take this as evidence to suggest that there was something appealing, necessary, or even appreciated about this housing regime. That was born out of a desire to keep an eye on unattached women in the city, it evolved over time. It dropped the restrictive patriarchal overtone and adjusted to the needs and desires of these women. What's really interesting is that this idea of a single-sex co-living space retains its appeal today amongst young women coming into the city, like Sarah. When you're first in the city, it was just like the most amazing thing in the world to not have to worry about like grocery shopping or like buying furniture, any of that stuff. It's like, it's all right there. Thank you.